Genesis chapter 21. We're nearing the halfway point of our study of Genesis. And here we have finally the promise fulfilled by God to give Abraham and Sarah a baby son by the name of Isaac. In this account, you will notice, as you've seen before in our study, that uh, there are often places where Sarah and Hagar are mentioned in um, juxtaposition. So we have the same thing here with two, two boys, Isaac and Ishmael. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 21, Genesis. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham named the name of his son, called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman and her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of your son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, a good way off about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. The man writes, If you had read some of my writings from the past years, 
you will discover that I say a lot of things differently these days. This is my 17th book over 20 years. During these years, God's grace hasn't grown, but my understanding of it has. That's one of the challenges in writing books. When the author grows, the things have already been written, and they stay the same. This fact used to bother me when I thought about writing this book, but finally I realized I can only write from where I am today and trust that God will empower faithful readers to grow with me, or I will stagnate. What I saw in seminal form in the past, I now see much more clearly. I feel like Lucy must have felt in C.S. Lewis's Prince and Caspian when she spoke to Aslan the lion, who is the image of Christ. Lucy said, Aslan, you're bigger than you were before. That's because you're older, little one, he answered. It's not because you're bigger, she said. No, I'm not bigger. But every year you grow, you will find me to be bigger. Now, that's true of the gospel. That's true of God, and it's true of grace. It's true of anyone who is growing, and yet the temptation is not to grow. The temptation is to deny the, the truth that we can grow deeper in our knowledge of the Lord. The temptation is to cling to some proof text or some body of doctrine that you've assembled over the years as if this is all there is once delivered. And when you do that, all you do is make yourself a Pharisee. And that's the challenge Jesus met. The challenge, those who challenged Jesus were the religious crowd. who thought they had it all figured out. You know, the rabbis of Jesus' day used to talk about four levels of meaning in a text. First, there was the literal level of meaning. These, this involved the who, the what, the why, the where, the, the how of the text. Next, they talked about the suggestive meaning. These are the motives and the intentions that lie behind the literal meaning. Then they talked about the investigative meaning. The meaning that is gained by careful analysis of the words and the phrases and the figures of speech. And then finally, they talked about the allegorical meaning, the symbolic meaning that lays behind the text. And according to the rabbis, it was the allegorical meaning of a text that was the highest level of meaning. They looked for allegorical meaning everywhere they could find it. And that's exactly what you see Paul doing in Galatians chapter 4, when he says Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, the other by a free woman, and then he says, this may be interpreted allegorically. In other words, this story may be interpreted as intersecting with my own story and your own story. Now, the fact is you can search both Old and New Testaments for a long time, and you will find a lot of texts that you can't find allegorical meaning. In both the Old and the New Testament, there are some texts, however, that are rich in allegorical meaning, and this is one of them. 
So look at the literal meaning of this text. You that have been with us for all these 20 weeks as we've dug into Genesis, you know that God has promised Abraham and his wife Sarah a child. He makes the promise 25 years earlier, and he spends 25 years before he makes good on that promise. But before the calendar year ends, remember he began, he said to Abraham and to Sarah, before I return within a year, you will bear a son. And here in chapter 21, we see that he keeps his promise. In less than a year, the Holy Spirit visits Sarah, and she conceives, and she does as God said she would do. Now, she's 90 and her husband is 100. There's no possible way that this woman who's been barren all of her, all of her life can bear a child on her own. In fact, when the angel of the Lord comes to her and says, you will bear a child in your old age, she laughs. And she says, will I even now have pleasure? And a few weeks ago when we looked at that, we looked at the word pleasure, and it doesn't simply mean the pleasure of holding a baby. It means the whole pleasure of holding her husband. They had a deep rift in their relationship. But here in chapter 21, the relationship's mended. Not only is Abraham back following the Lord's commands, he names the child Isaac as the Lord has commanded, and he circumcises him on the eighth day. Now, those are some of the literal meanings of this text. Now, let's look at suggestive meanings. There are a number of them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it's interesting to, to notice verses 6 and 7. Sarah says, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. What's she mean by that? Then she says, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? What's she mean by that? Oh, there's a lot of meaning there that's suggested in the birth and the maturation of this little boy, Isaac. And a lot of that suggestive meaning is, is lost on many. But then let's consider the investigative meaning of the words. God paints for us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, a picture of Isaac at his weaning. And we see so much in this story that needs to be investigated in terms of the words and the phrases, and we'll look at some of those. But it all happens in the context of this story. I mean, think of Jesus' ministry. For three years, he proclaimed the gospel, the good news to the people of Israel, and it also oozed out to the Gentiles. In three years, he tells 40 stories, 40 parables that communicate spiritual truth. And the reason he tells those stories is he learned that from his father because people of all generations, people of all millennia connect to stories. I've got a friend down in Orlando who wrote a textbook on understanding the Old Testament, but he didn't call it that. It's used all over the world. You know what he called it? He gave them stories. And the reason he said that was because, and the reason he titled it, is because he looked at the, the 
heft of the Old Testament. He saw it's story after story because stories connect with us. He knew, knew that when God delivers spiritual truth, he almost always does it in the context of a story. And nowhere is that clearer than here in Genesis 21. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the delivery. Look at verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Now, if you were here last week and they were in chapter, we were in chapter 20, you know that the focus, the spotlight was on God. It's what he said he would do that he does. He promised to Abraham 30 years earlier that he would make of him a great nation. He promised him that by Sarah he would produce an offspring, the seed that he began to talk about in Genesis chapter 3. He would produce through Sarah, Isaac. And he safeguards that promise to the day that Sarah delivers. If you were here last week, you know that a king tried to interrupt it. But yet the Lord makes a promise and he keeps it. There is nothing that can stand in the way of him fulfilling his promise. Not a pagan king, not the sin of men, not the plans of men, not a length of time. What God promises, he delivers and without his delivery, nothing would happen. I mean, think of it. Someone has said, no one can save himself any more than Abraham and Sarah could have produced a son. Isn't that exactly what Jesus says to Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John's gospel? He tells him it's an outside job. Unless someone be born again of the Spirit of God, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that, unless the power of God flows into a person, as it does in the case of Sarah, there will be no new life. Just as the Holy Spirit engenders the life of Isaac in a cold, dead, sinful womb, he has engendered life in a cold, dead, sinful heart like yours and mine. And so that we don't miss it, he offers a contrast with Ishmael. Ishmael, unlike Isaac, is the product not of a supernatural delivery. He's the product of human effort. There is nothing in the Bible that tells us that God sanctioned the birth of Ishmael. He is the product of impatience and doubt. He is the product of the will of man, a man and a woman. You see, the contrast couldn't be clearer. If you're a Christian today, if you're born again of the Spirit of God, you are just like Isaac. The Holy Spirit overshadowed you. The Holy Spirit visited you with His presence, and He brought life out of death. Your spiritual birth is not the product of your own will. It's not the product of your own flesh. It's not the product of you wising up and making a right decision. If you know Jesus Christ and you trust Him, it's the will of God. It's the work of God. He is the one who's initiated faith in you. And the blessing of my life over these past 31 years is I've gotten to see that rebirth in many of you. 
Second, notice the division. Look at verses 8 and 9. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. There are five words in Hebrew for laughing. And this is the strongest one she could use or the Bible could use. The word here means to laugh with scorn and contempt. So think about this. As she, Sarah, is weaning Isaac, who's somewhere between the ages of three and five, he whose name means he laughed is laughed at as he transitions from mother's milk to solid food. And it's not hard to imagine why Ishmael would be laughing. When you do any analysis of what it meant to be weaned in antiquity, do you know what it meant to be weaned? At this great feast, collection of the household of Abraham, during this wonderful meal, this little boy, Isaac, somewhere between three and five years old, it is determined by his mother that it's time for him to eat solid food. So she takes solid food, puts it in her mouth, and chews it, to the point that it's pureed, and then with her tongue, she pushes it into her son's mouth. And that little maneuver would often result in expelling that food from the child's mouth. I mean, he's wearing all of this pureed food. I mean, think of that. Think of that's how, if that's how you had been weaned. Before Gerber. Before the little you know, vegetable uh, bottles. What are they called? Jars. Imagine your mother taking solid food, maybe a piece of meat or lasagna and chewing it up well and then with her tongue pushing it into your mouth. That's what Ishmael is seeing and he's 16 or 17 or 18 years old and he, he's saying in effect by laughing, look at that slobby, he can't even eat, what a baby he is. And when Sarah sees him laugh, she begins to bark the same order she barked at her husband 16 years earlier when she saw Hagar laugh or look at her with contempt. So look what we have here. We have a husband, Abraham, who in the last chapter repeats the same lie that he told 40 years, old, 40 years earlier to another king. And here in chapter 21, we have a woman, Sarah, who is confirming her own selfishness, confirming that she's a serial whiner, and she says exactly the same thing, get rid of them! And what you have here is a picture of two sinful hearts. And on the face of it, you want to say to Sarah, would you chill out? That's what teenage boys do. But notice there's a deeper meaning here. Look where they are. They're gathered around a table in a feast. In antiquity, you only gathered your family and those you trusted, those under your care, around a feast table. They're at a celebration. This is the time to customarily 
bless the Lord for his blessings in the life, not only the birth of this child, but also the growth of this child. It's to turn your attention to the Lord and acknowledge our degree, our desire to praise him for all of his blessings. And suddenly in the midst of it, there's a division. Sarah says to Abraham, take that woman and that son and cast them out. Now, years earlier, when Sarah had said to Abraham, take my slave girl and produce a child, she's following what will become the law of Moses. She was following the law. And that's what Paul is talking about in Galatians 4 when he says, Ishmael, born to Hagar, was born under the law. And here in a place of communion in a place where the full extent of God's grace is in focus, there is a division between the law and grace. And look what God says in verse 12. Do not be displeased because of the boy or the slave woman, Abraham. Whatever Sarah, your wife, says to you, do it. Now, God's not simply saying to Abraham, placate her. What he's saying is, my will is that there be a separation between the flesh and the spirit. Between those living under the law and those living under grace. What the Lord is saying is, spiritual growth requires a weaning from the flesh. A weaning from the will of men and women. Do you see this? It's the testimony of Scripture that we've already seen in Genesis that the greatest, most damaging feature of the flesh is a reliance on yourself. The greatest, most damaging feature in walking by sight rather than by faith, walking by your own flesh rather than by the grace of God, the danger is to believe that you become the arbiter of all that is right. I mean, that's at the heart of what Paul is saying to the Galatians. Chapter 1, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to another gospel. Who's bewitched you into believing that growing in the Christian life can mean, means focusing on you and your meritorious deeds? In other words, what Paul is saying is, I can't believe I've been away for a number of months, and look what's happened. You've abandoned the gospel for a, a religion that's no different from Judaism, where you're focusing on how you're living and what you're doing and whether you're earning standing with God. Last year, we lost a giant in the Christian church, Richard Lovelace of Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Dr. Lovelace once wrote, in their day-to-day -day lives, most evangelical Christian conservatives rely on their sanctification for their justification. They draw, on their, they draw their acceptance by God from their own sincerity, their own past conversion, the relative infrequency of conscious and willful disobedience. In other words, they abandon grace for law. They're saved by grace, they're willing to acknowledge it, but they believe that their growth in grace is a function of them doing all of the right things 
and spending all of their time considering their goodness. That's exactly what Paul is talking about throughout his letters. And he knows that for the child of God growing in faith, is always jeopardized by the works of the flesh, especially prideful religious works. They must be driven away. Your gaze and my gaze must be on the one who has done all that is necessary for us to be acceptable to God. Not just when we're saved, but when we live and when we're glorified. Third, notice the declaration. Look at verse 12. Again, but God said to Abraham, do not be displeased because of the boy or the slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac your offspring shall be named. I used to go to a mechanic that had a sign in his shop that read, oil change $15. If you watch, $20. If you help, $25. Now, that's the sign that God's posted throughout the Bible. When it comes to our standing with God, God says, I don't need your help. I don't need your works. I can do it all by myself. And that's why Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, in in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, he says this, From Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us Wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Do you hear what he's saying? Jesus is all of it. He is our wisdom. He is our goodness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. You know what the Puritans used to call that? They used to say, we are saved to the uttermost. You see, when God says it is through Isaac that your offspring will be named, the word he uses there that is translated names literally means to be justified. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be justified. Now, who is this offspring that he's talking about? Who is this one who will come as our justifier? He's the same one who will come as our sanctifier. He is the same one who will choose us and call us and name us for himself. He's Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord's saying here. In Jesus Christ, I will do all of it. Do you see this? Someone has said, grace is love that seeks you when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is a love that has nothing to do with you at all. It has everything to do with the lover. It has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do with intrinsic qualities or gifts. It reflects a decision on the part of the giver that negates any qualification the receiver may hold before he's born again or afterwards. That's what we see in this story. And then fourth and finally, notice the destiny. Look at verses 19 and 20. Then God opened Hagar's eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. Now, notice the difference in destinies between Isaac and Ishmael. 
I remember years ago, years ago, talking to an old friend of mine who we were talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and he made this statement in no uncertain terms. He says, I would never root for the Palestinians. That would be like rooting for Ishmael. As if God had cast Ishmael out. God never cast Ishmael out. Abraham did. Sarah did. But God didn't. Look at the text. While Isaac lives near a well in the household of his father, Ishmael lives his life in the desert, away from his father. His condition is so bleak that his mother separates herself from him because she doesn't want to see him die. And as Hagar is weeping, the Bible says the Lord hears the voice of the child. That's Ishmael's voice. And the angel visits Hagar just as he had done years earlier when she was pregnant out in the desert after she had been kicked out. And the Lord does the same thing. He shows her a well of water. Now Isaac lives drawing water directly from the well of God's grace. Ishmael has to depend on water brought to him in skins. Isaac will grow up wielding a sword like his father. Ishmael will grow up being an archer just like Nimrod and and Esau and two other worldly men. When Isaac marries, he takes a, a wife of promise just like his mother. When Ishmael marries, he takes a wife from the world, an Egyptian, just like his mother. You see, these two men are vastly different. Their destinies are vastly different. One lives a life of joy and abundance and laughter. The other lives a life of strife and pain, and yet God blesses them both. Though Ishmael's mother is a slave, Ishmael will grow to be a father and a ruler. And that should come as no surprise because his mother was the first person in the Bible to name God. And remember what he named him? She named him the God who sees and knows me. And Ishmael will come to know God as the one who sees him and knows him too. Look what the Bible says here. God was with Ishmael. And he dwelt in Paran, which means beauty and glory. You know, I read that text for years and never thought of the meaning of Paran. Just like Beersheba means the place of seven wells, Paran means a place of beauty and glory. I mean, the Lord was with Ishmael. It's just like C.S. Lewis understood so well. When he wrote the allegories of the Christian faith, he tells of Lucy, her encounter with the line of Judah, Christ figure, Aslan. Lucy says to him, Aslan, you're bigger than you were before. Aslan says, that's because you're older, little one. You mean you're not bigger? No, I'm not bigger, but every year you grow, you will find me to be bigger. That's the way it is with God. And that's the way it is with grace. You see, when God tells Abraham to do as Sarah says, It's so that they can be done with Hagar and Ishmael, but God's never done with them. In fact, he never turns his back on them. 
He sends them away so that they might grow his way too. And if you ever doubt that, just look at the way Jesus treated the sons of Isaac, the Jews, and the sons of Ishmael, the Gentiles, like you and me. Think about that.